0: Hi, this is Randall Schwartz, host of Floss Weekly. This week, Simon Pipps joins me to talk about open source software at, get this, at the U.S. Department of Defense. Pretty surprising stuff. You'll want to hear about this, so stay tuned. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This, this is, twit.
1: is Twit. Bandwidth for Floss Weekly is provided by Cashfly. At CACHEFLY.com.
0: This is Floss Weekly with Randall Schwartz and Simon Phipps, episode 160 for April 6, 2011. Open Source Software at the Department of Defense. This episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies streamed to your PC, Mac, or TV instantly. Plus, get DVDs by mail in about one business day. For your free 30-day trial, go to Netflix.com/twit it's time for floss weekly the show about free libre open source software i am your host randall schwartz merlin at stonehenge.com bringing you each week the movers the shakers the big projects the small projects the thinkers the doers everything all the way across the uh across the spectrum but uh i'm often aided by a very competent uh, person but we couldn't find one this week no just kidding <laughs> we'll bring on my co-host simon phipps simon welcome back to the show
2: it's a pleasure to be back here randall uh, it's 20 degrees centigrade here in the uk i've broken out the Hawaiian shirt and the cocktails, and I'm trying not to smirk too much at the people in the icy wastes of coastal America, particularly on the east at the moment.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so for, uh, I'm trying to think, of, is 20 like freezing or boiling? I'm, I'm not sure being from the U.S. It's,
2: it's kind of warm, you know, it's
0: oh. in, the, in the 70s, you know. <laughs> kind of warm. Okay, that'll work. Simon, Simon, I just found out that we're going to be physically in the same place once again. Do you know where that is?
2: I don't know where that is. Where is it going to be, Randall? It's you, am, be I going some, on, am I going on a cruise?
0: Somewhere below the equator, maybe down in the Brazilian area.
2: All oh, right. So you're going to Fisle, are
0: you? Yeah, I guess we're both going to be at Fisle uh, this yep. year. I've been accepted as one of the, the keynote speakers, just like you. I saw you there on the page and I thought, oh my God, well, I'm actually going to get to see Simon in, in, in the flesh again for a change.
2: Maybe we could record a, a Floss Weekly down in Brazil.
0: Oh, that would be cool. I'll have to practice yep. my portuguese
2: <laughs> well i think we should we should actually have one in a first corral drinking caipirinhas with uh, with a, with dancing girls going on in the room
0: okay okay that might be a bit distracting but maybe we'll work something out well this show isn't it's not we'll about, about. Yeah. <laughs> this show's not about you and me uh it's, a, it's about our guests and this week we have a really interesting guest Uh, Unlike most of the times when I'm bringing on a project and having a project leader talk about the project, this time the guest that we have is none other than David Wheeler, David A. Wheeler, he likes to be known as because there's other David Wheelers out there. David Wheeler is an expert, uh, so he claims anyway, and we'll check this out, on how open source software is being used in uh, the U.S. Department of Defense. Now, when I first saw this topic, I went, the DOD is using open source software? Then I thought about, yeah, I guess I would have to because there's a lot of really cool things out there in the open source communities. And... And uh, why not use that alongside all the rest of the software that they procure and spend my tax dollars on? In fact, maybe that's actually an advantage because you're not spending all that money on it. So um, I've got a lot of questions I want to ask him to, to have him uh, uh, on the show. Or, uh, and, uh, Simon, you've got some questions you probably want to ask him too?
2: Uh, absolutely. You know, I'd be very interested to talk to David about uh, the work that he's been doing in the DOD to the extent that he'll talk to me being a non-resident alien working for a suspect foreign power. Uh, But I'll be very interested to find out uh, what steps he's been able to take uh, in socializing uh, open source software in the DOD. Uh, I think there's a lot that can be learned from him by uh, other governments and the example he's got there. And David, of course, is very well known in the the free and open source software community for his involvement in all sorts of things. Not least that he did a a controversial talk at the uh, the NASA Open Source Summit last week. I'll Mm. be quite interested to hear about that from him, too.
0: Very good, very good. But before we bring them on, I have to thank two different or groups or organizations. Thank you again to Media Temple for providing the uh, hosting place, not the hosting place, the space for me to actually do this uh, podcast in. They give me a room all to myself here, and they even gave me this really wonderful mic if you're watching on the video. Uh, but also, we have a sponsor this week, and I love this sponsor. This is a, one of my favorite things to be inter- interacting with. We have Netflix as a sponsor, and I have a little bit I have to read here about Netflix. And it's not coming up. There we go. Okay, so uh, so this, this episode of Floss Weekly is brought to you by Netflix. Netflix delivers movies directly to your home and it saves you time, money, and hassle. You can instantly watch thousands of TV episodes and movies stream directly to your Windows machine or Mac machine. They say PC here in the copy, of PCs include Mac, so I don't know why it says PC. Or stream to your TV via Netflix-ready device, including the Xbox 360, PS3, and Nintendo Wii. And you can also get DVDs by mail on about one business day. You watch as many movies as you want, anytime you want. There are never any late fees or due dates. Uh, uh, and so um, you can basically, uh, I'm, I'm a happy Netflix user. I have Netflix on my laptop when I'm in my hotel rooms. I, use, I watch that instead of watching the, the crummy uh, cable TV they always have. I also have it on my iPhone, so I've actually been driving down, not driving down, I've been I've been in a bus <laughs> going down the freeway and also down on the train. I've been watching Netflix right there on my iPhone. I also have a Roku at home. It comes right to there. I also have a, a PlayStation 3. comes directly to there. So I'm a very happy customer. I have something like... 450 movies and television shows in my uh, in my queue to watch. So I've got plenty of stuff to watch for the next nine months. I can watch continuously and still run out of stuff. So, uh, no, we do have a special offer. If you want to watch any movie or any of the thousands of TV shows that are provided by Netflix, you can actually get a free trial membership. If you go to netflix.com slash twit, T-W-I-T, uh, you can get a one-month free membership. And I would really encourage you to test it out, uh, mostly in the U.S. So if you're international, you might not have as big a selection, but uh, go check it out, definitely. I'm a happy Netflix user and you can be too. So now that we further ado, let's go ahead and bring on our guest. Thank you very much. Glad to be so, here. Great, great. And where are we speaking to you from? Are you in some secret bunker somewhere?
1: Nah, I'm in Northern Virginia. Uh, I'm actually at my house right now,
0: uh, but I work not far from here. Very cool, very cool. Well, uh, we brought you on today uh, to talk about one of your favorite subjects. Uh, I gave sort of a brief overview of what I knew about the subject area of having a open source software at the Department of Defense at the beginning of the show, but I probably did a really horrible job. Since you're the expert on it, can you give us sort of like the, like what's the big deal about the open source software at the Department of Defense? Well, I guess the the big
1: deal is that the Department of Defense uses a heck of a lot of open source software. It releases open source software, and it's perfectly fine to do so. Um, And a lot of people in even other government agencies and other governments uh, still think that that's somehow impossible or some sort of big problem. Uh, And it's not a big problem.
0: So why would people think it's a big problem? Let's start from that, and we'll kind of spiral into how it actually works out
1: okay um actually a, a lot of problems turn out to hinge on just problems of people have to follow various rules and regulations and fine in, inside the government and the problem is when they look at these they their minds kind of go tilt because a lot of them weren't written with open source in mind mm-hmm. and uh you know and and uh, there's some other problems that kind of misconceptions you know the oh it can't be secure which is of course nonsense or it uh, or anything else like that. So it, it's, and I think a whole lot of it just comes down to believe it or not, unfamiliarity. I think you and I, of course, know that open source has been around for a long time, but sadly, a lot of people are still kind of waking up to that. Uh, so I, I think a lot of the problem inside of the duty. It turns out, DOD never had any restrictions or, or, or prohibitions on it. Um, the problem has been more at the uh, at, at the you know, you know twelve layers down, uh, people making. Uh, false assumptions and ignoring stuff that they should have been uh,
0: using or considering at least. Well, let's let's back up just a little bit here. Uh, some people, from especially from other countries, might not be aware of just how what the relationship the DoD has with say government contractors and stuff. But how does how does how does software ever end up in something inside the DoD in the first place? And and how does open source software affect that process? Okay, fair
1: enough. But by the way, let me uh, st- let me uh, pound include uh, standard disclaimer. I'm not speaking for the DoD, yeah. uh, but that <laughs> neither um, am I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good, good. Um, but basically, uh, every, sometimes, sometimes a government employee who works for the Department of Defense actually writes the software that gets used. But actually, that's that's a very much a minority. Most of the time, what happens is the, is the Department of Defense wants to get something done. It will either um, Create a new contract or use an existing contract and modify it, and then hire out a contractor to actually do the work, who may, in fact, hire out a subcontractor to do pieces of the other work and so on. And so, in Bigger projects, it can often be several tiers of a contractor and the subcontractor and sub subcontractor all developing pieces of a larger system that the DoD uses, uh, and that's not, by the way, unique to the DoD. That's true for U.S. government in general, and I believe many other governments, uh,
0: at least Western
1: governments, uh, do the same kind of thing.
0: Okay, so they they in order to have this happen, they put out some sort of bid, right? They have to have some sort of specification, and and who's allowed to uh, submit? To that bid is it just anybody any any company or any, any individual or, or are there restrictions on that
1: it depends on the company on the contract uh sometimes it's fairly open sometimes it's not um uh the bigger ones often you end up tend to in many cases uh, getting a lot of the same dod contractors because for the big contracts uh the folks who are familiar with how the dod works and the rules often end up being the ones being the bidders. Uh, But in fact, that's one of the issues is that I think the DoD would like to see more competition, uh, more people bidding on these things, because uh, with more competition, results tend to be better.
0: And how, how vague or how specific are these uh, requests for proposals, the RFPs? Do they, uh, they drill down all the way down to saying it must run on Windows and it must interface with these three databases? Or is it more just we need some sort of datum management software? Or, or maybe it's everything and all that in between. Uh, I think the, the
1: honest answer is it depends, uh, which mm. I realize is kind of a wimpy answer. But really, sometimes <laughs> it's very specific and sometimes it's rather vague. They usually try to at least identify, you know, it has to connect
0: with these components and so on. But uh, it varies a lot. Okay. And so I, I might, as a software contractor, which I actually am, <laughs> might see okay. one of these proposals somewhere in some, in some uh, you know, pr- published uh, place online, I hope uh, that I can see this. And, yep. and and I might say, well, oh, I know it'll fit that. I know that a, I, either some standard CPAN software from the, from Perl, or maybe uh, maybe this looks like a free BSD machine would fit the specification for this. Right now, what is there anything stopping me from fulfilling the bid? If there's nothing literally in the bid to do, use up source software then for that. Uh, Nothing
1: at all, actually. And this is actually one of the challenges is that uh, the DOD, you know, it sends out these uh, proposals saying, hey, please uh, propose stuff to us. But when people don't look at it and say, oh, wait a minute, I could use these open source software components, they don't get included even if that would have been the better, cheaper way because they're just not considered. Um, And uh, this is actually a more general problem. The DOD is trying to get people to consider all these things, but. You know, the folks who are actually doing the
0: contracting don't always do so. Well, that would seem like a, a sort of a misuse of my dollars. If if, if and if a bid can be fulfilled with things that are available uh, off the shelf and free, rather than having to go out and buy commercial licenses, say, for Oracle or for Windows or whatever to do something, it sounds like it would actually be a benefit for uh, everyone to start considering open source software for this stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, which, in, in fact, the DOD is trying to uh, address that. Um, so uh, I, guess, I guess at this point I ought to point out to uh, folks, uh, first of all, if you're inside the DOD, of course, this is directly relevant. But even if you don't, aren't involved directly with it, uh, it's probably worth pointing out that the uh, Department of Defense released in 2009 a policy trying to address some of these problems. And uh, I, you can blame me because I actually helped write the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we tried to at least address some of these misconceptions. So uh, how's this? Uh, let me pull out the uh, dead tree copy here. Uh, I wanted yep. to have a prop. <laughs> so here's my Good prop. Job. Of course, uh-huh. nobody can see it. Uh, but uh, the title is Clarifying Guidance Regarding Open Source Software. And it, and it tries to clarify this sort of stuff. So maybe what I should do is just kind of not read it to you, but just kind of walk through some of
0: the points and uh yeah, got the bullet and, points. And, and, let's hear about that,
1: yeah. Yeah, and let me pull some of the bullet points, and then we can kind of discuss it as as we go along. Sure. Um, a lot of the stuff, you know, the first half of the page is just who it's sent to, so you kind of have to be familiar with how you read these things. But when you go in the back and get the actual meat, um, it's uh, got a couple points. Uh, the first one, actually, uh, let's see, here's A, if you're looking in the back here on page four. Um, basically, it says, uh, open source software is almost always commercial software. And that actually kind of surprises a lot of people. But if you go look at, for example, the U.S. government actually defines what commercial items mean. And it says if it's licensed to the public and there's at least one non-government use, it's pub- it's commercial. Hmm. Even if it's modified, it's commercial. And that's by law. Um, and, uh, that's, and, and so, wow, that's so, so what, that, what that means, of course, is that all, almost all the open-source software is commercial, and that's really important because it turns out that there are rules about commercial software. In particular, the contractors are supposed to always look for the commercial software, and if, and if they're appropriate, they're supposed to prefer them.
0: So the definition so of the, commercial here, I just want to make sure that I'm clear, the definition yeah. of commercial here isn't commercial in the sense that I'm thinking about it, and maybe a lot of other people now listening are, which is that it has to do with monetary exchange, but rather the realm of users for software defines whether it's commercial or not. That's right. That's right. And in fact,
1: uh, let's see here. Uh, Oh, I've even got the U.S. Those of you who are lawyers, uh, 10 U.S.C. 2377. Isn't that sad? I've got that here. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, Now, now what's interesting, by the way, is that that's the part about government contracts. But it turns out if you go look at the copyright law. And by the way, I'll have to give credit to Linus Torvalds who pointed this out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out the copyright law says that financial gain just means you were, you were either receiving or hoping to receive anything else in exchange, including copyrighted work. So simply by creating an open source project with the hope that you're going to get some stuff back, that's financial. So they're actually thinking of that as a financial gain. And again, it's commercial. Uh, hmm. Even if no money exchanges hands, you know barter is still commercial. Even if no money exchanges hands, hmm. Interesting. so and and so that turns that kind of um, sounds like a, a a little point. But because there's all these rules about preferring commercial software, and you're supposed to look at commercial software, knowing oh wait a minute, it met this definition. All of a sudden, you know, the, the government folks, the, the contractors who before said, well, I don't know what this open source software is. I've got a bunch of rules I'm supposed to follow. What rules am I supposed to follow? Oh, it's just the commercial rules. They all apply. Keep going. And this actually frees them up from a lot of, of uh, misunderstandings because they already know how to do commercial, how to handle commercial software. They just needed, needed to know that open source was
0: commercial also.
1: Uh, So that's actually probably one of the biggest things. In fact, it's the first one because that really just opens up um, all sorts of stuff, uh, all all sorts of possibilities on open source software. And and by the way, I should note that this policy says all sorts of positive things about open source. It doesn't say you must always use it or that's the cure-all, but it certainly says some positive things. Um, So that's probably one of the biggest points is open source software is commercial, Um, and you know, even outside the government, I, I should point out, you know, Red Hat's not a, um, a non-profit, nor is Novell, nor are lots of other organizations who do, who develop open source software. So, I mean, even for lots of other reasons, it's kind of silly to say open source software isn't commercial. Um, Let's see, I, I, was, I was talking about the policy though. Probably the next big thing, and this is a DoD unique thing, except I've, I've since learned that lots of government agencies have copied this. Uh, the DoD has, some, has something about not using freeware, but then you have to go look at what do they mean by freeware? And they mean software where there's no source code and there's nobody who will fix it for them because mm. they, want, they want something maintained. Well, wait a minute. If freeware is stuff that isn't, that where there's no source code, Obviously, open source software can't be freeware, no. and, yeah, and right, but uh, this is one of those other words that just causes all sorts of trouble, needless trouble, needless trouble. Um, and, uh, and so by just clarifying, no, 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 when we say freeware, it can't mean open source because you've got the source code, you, know, you or other people could maintain it for you. Uh, so let's see. Let's see. The next one. Um, I don't know if you had any comments. If you've heard that uh, word freeware, uh, alts were used. Yes, no, I see a shaking head. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> um, let's see here. A-, a lot of these other things are, are really, again, kind of mis- misunderstandings. Um, Basically, you've got to have some way of maintaining the software. it's open source or not, they've got some way. Um, But, you know, there's lots of ways to maintain open source software. And there's a lot of misunderstandings, particularly about the uh, GPL. Um, Mm -hmm. It may surprise people, but in fact, uh, you know, lots of commercial companies and the U.S. government release software under the GPL. And there's this strange idea that the GPL requires that every time you make a change, automatically it has to be pushed out to the public. That's never what the GPL said. Um, It's much more specific than that. And so you have to actually read what it actually says. I guess that's probably the real issue is that there's a lot of misunderstandings about the GPL. That's just one of them. And instead of... Hearing what people say, you should either look at something more authoritative or read the GPL itself. It's not that big and certainly not that complicated uh, to see what it really says. Uh, It turns out, by the way, there's lots and lots of GPL software the DoD uses. It doesn't cause us any trouble. Linux is used all over. GCC is used all over. They're both GPL'd.
2: No problem. So I've been writing about this a bit um, recently, David, uh, notably on the subject of procurement of open source software by governments. Uh, my experience over the last year has been that um, at the start-up we've been getting going, it's the procurement departments that are screwed up, not the technical departments when it comes to these things. Um, have you found in the DOD that you've had to go and address the procurement rules to stop them asking for negotiable licences and uh, warranties and indemnities on free software? Because oh, that's been the thing that's been hitting us every time is um, clueful technical departments and then clueless procurement departments?
1: Uh, The problem of uh, clueless procurement departments is endemic the world around. Uh, I don't think, I think actually the DoD is probably better than most, but that's also starting with a pretty low bar. Um, And unfortunately, the, the procurement folks are supposed to be slightly knowledgeable about everything, which unfortunately leaves them not very knowledgeable about a lot of things. Um, So, yes, we've had to try to explain all sorts of things. Um, The the warranty thing is actually an interesting case. Um, uh, The DOD managed to write some text that I, I think the, the saving grace is that DOD explained why it wanted it and basically it said it had, it, the DOD needs to be either repaired itself or have somebody else repair it, which actually is perfectly sensible. But the problem is that it was worded in a way that made people think, oh, wait a minute, you've got to have warranties uh, everywhere. And we're still having the problem. The, the DOD policy at this top level, we're still trying to push it down to all the various uh, departments and agencies and so on um, who I I think uh, you know, need, need to fix what they've got They're, it's not all consistent so we're, we're very much working that and I don't think we're unusual at all in that situation
2: certainly I, I, looking in the UK um, I, I see the UK government has stumbled over and over again on this very topic that uh, like we, have a, we had a fine sounding procurement policy from our previous government who fundamentally ended up buying Microsoft software because, first of all, they were locked in all the way from here to hell, and secondly, because they had procurement policies that kept things that way. So I think it's, it's true the world over that the procurement policies are, uh, are, are the obstacle. Do, do you have something written down showing what steps you had to take to fix DoD procurement policies? Because uh, that would be a very useful document to be able to show to you know, the British government and to other governments who are struggling with this. <sighs> Well, I don't know about the
1: process. Um, I mean, every government has its own process for doing policies anyway. Um, but I think what's probably helpful is that the DOD's got an, an official policy, this, uh, cl- this clarifying guidance from 2009. Um, and uh, what they can do is go look at that and see what, what would be helpful for them. Uh, not so much the process, but what, what have we said? And, you know, we, well, I said I'm not really speaking for the DOD, but what's the DOD say? And... Um, And, you know, gee, can we copy that? Do those those statements make sense for us too? I think actually a lot of these are statements that would make sense for a lot of folks. Uh, As far as the lock-in problem, that is a very serious issue. Uh, There's no simple answer to that. But I will say that one of the solutions for lock-in is basically stop thinking in terms of one or two years or maybe even three years ahead. Because if you're locked in 10 years from now no change you'll still be locked in and if you start calculating out well, what's this going to cost me for 10 years if I can't change and they know that I can't change Um, in general if you can't if if there can't be competition you're going to pay a heavy price and most governments plan to be around in 10 20 years they should plan for their for the tools that they need to use to also be around that long and I think I think if they started calculating the true cost not just an annual cost um, a lot of decisions will be different. Right,
2: right. So I, I was actually looking today that, at uh, some, some questions in parliament, again here in the UK, and we had uh, a cabinet office minister, a guy called Ian Watmore, making a statement that said that, of course, open source software uh, wasn't secure because the, the guys at, uh, at GCHQ in the UK and uh, there in Virginia where you, you are find that open source is much easier to hack. Um, what do you, What would you say to uh, Mr. Watmore if you had the opportunity to uh, disabuse him of that uh, that line of thinking?
1: Oh my goodness! Uh, a long list of things. Uh, l- let me start with first of all, what do they mean by hack? It turns out that there are still some people who've been. I would say, mis- mis- uh, misled by journalists who think the word hack is something uh, much to do with breaking in. I mean, people sometimes use that word that way. But the old definition of hack is basically to, uh, to understand and to, to deeply understand something, and you know, in this case, to improve it. Um, so open source software is easier to maintain is what that says. Oh. Wait, that's maybe not what you mean. It, presumably what they really meant, though, is that open source software is easier to break into. And um, it's certainly true that just because it's open source, it's not automatically better. But a lot of open source software is really good from a security vantage point. Um, a lot of software, open source software is quite secure. And in particular, I would, I would point out, and I'm not unique, a lot of security experts uh, point out um, that open source has an, a fundamental advantage uh, the basic principles for developing secure software were identified by Salzer and Schroeder back in the 70s. Uh, and one of the key ones is what's called open design. In other words, you, should, you better not depend on having that source code secret because, in fact, it's going to be found out. You know, proprietary software gets broken into all the time with, by people who don't have the source code. They don't need it. The uh, source code is more helpful for someone trying to repair it, not particularly for an attacker. Um, and so, what you're, so basically the advantage of open source software is that it's available for public peer review and mass peer review, which tends to produce better works. Peer-reviewed stuff isn't always better, but you know, science, mathematics, I mean, in general in the sciences and engineering, it's generally accepted that peer review produces better products and you know, not always, not guaranteed, but it definitely uh, does tend to produce better works.
2: So um, how do you guarantee that peer review is going to take place, though, David? Because, I mean, if you've, if you've got a project like, um, you know, a project that is run by a single vendor, for example, under an open source license, still the only people who actually are reviewing that are the vendor's staff. So, you know, no, it, no, surely, well, it, it isn't should've... always the case that there's peer review going on.
1: Oh no! This—it's certainly not true that peer review always goes on. Um, now, just being a single vendor doesn't mean that no, peer review is going on. By the way, a number of these projects, which have a single leading vendor uh, supplier, uh, still get lots and lots of peer review. Um, but be, you know, doesn't I mean the the way is not is to evaluate the software, which is in fact what you're supposed to be doing for any software before you. I mean before you bring in software that you that is going to be really important to you that's that's going to be something you're really going to depend on if it's proprietary if it's open source it doesn't if you're going to write it yourself you need to evaluate it and see if it's actually going to meet your needs and in the case of open source software what you should be doing is going back and looking gee are people evaluating it are the problems that they're identifying getting fixed you know all, all software is going to have problems occasionally so but are they are people looking for it are they fixing problems that they find? Um, I actually wrote a little paper on how to evaluate open source software. And it's basically, it's the same criteria you use for any software, but you actually have more information than you did other places. And you can actually go look at it. And so it's actually, I would say the converse, the transparency of a of typical open-source software development means that at least you have a fighting chance of determining is this good, is this bad? Uh, a lot of proprietary software, it's not immediately obvious. Uh, you certainly can't watch and watch them develop it uh, to see if they're actually paying attention to the issues that you
2: care about. So the the, the leading question has to be, are the NSA actually using open-source software, David? Uh, let's see, what can I tell you? I, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, don't, um, I, I Well, yeah. I, I, okay. Um, the short answer is yes. Of course they are. And in fact, they're using quite a bit of open source software, like lots of other organizations. And there's no. I'm, I'm not revealing any grand secrets, by the way.
2: Uh, they publish all. I, I should tell you, I, I am a non-resident alien. You should be aware of that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm well, so I'm non-resident. I'm not even in America at the moment. Well,
1: this is being posted to the world, so I've got to be careful what I say. But in this particular case, um, a lot of folks actually heard about something called security-enhanced Linux. Uh, That was actually developed by the NSA as an extension to Linux to add additional security capabilities um, to Linux specifically. And why did they do that? Because they had additional they, they wanted additional capabilities and Linux let them go and modify the software, but they didn't want to maintain it forever or anything like that. Um, uh, and so they uh, contributed to the Linux uh, kernel community just like any other potential contributor and people hemmed and hawed and eventually it got in. Um, I think that's... Uh, they had actually... That particular project's interesting because they'd actually spent a lot of time and a lot of money redeveloping operating systems from scratch that no one ever used. Uh, which is kind of sad when you think about it. And instead, with that Linux work, um, you know, anybody who uses uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux or CentOS or Fedora, um, uh, well even, almost anyone who uses it, at least by default, it comes with that turned on. And so there's lots and lots of people who are using that additional security capability uh, because they were able to improve an open source software project.
0: Yeah, we actually had the the guy from Su Linux, or one of the one of the chief uh, kind of overseers of it, uh, on the, on Floss Weekly a few weeks ago. I wasn't uh, the host that time. We actually had to listen to the show, but it was uh, it was a quite an interesting show about how yeah. it really uh, got from the NSA developing this back into the mainstream. And that actually leads me to a whole series of questions, which is how how much uh, can DoD either contractors or people inside the DoD uh, participate as part of the community for these uh, software pieces, or do they just simply use and and and, and, squ- and squander for themselves the the changes that they 're making locally okay um, actually uh, I you, we,
1: we talked about that policy. the very last part of the policy basically mm-hmm. says um, uh, you know software items should be released under the pup to the public, such as an open source software license uh, when uh, given the following conditions. In fact, let me read the conditions because I think that's sure. helpful. Yeah. Um, the first one is, there are three conditions. The first one is that, you know, the project manager, program manager, or some other official determines that's the government's interest to do so, such as through the expectation of future enhancements by others. So uh, the, the DOD is actually not unique in this. Nobody wants to pay the cost of maintenance because maintenance is actually way more costly than initial development. So... Uh, oftentimes it's in the government's interest to get that software that it, you know, changes it's made back into the uh, open source software project so that the, uh, other people can maintain it, not just the government all by itself. So there's, there's gotta be a, basically there's got to be a reason to do so, but there is a kind of a built-in reason in many cases. Uh, let's see, the second reason is the government has to, has to have the rights to do so. Um, and that's actually a, uh, that turns out to be a lot trickier than you might think. I'm sorry to say. So uh, here we go. I have another prop. Are you ready for another dead tree sure. prop? Here we go. Sure, sure. Okay. So here we go. Dead tree prop. Uh, this is duty and open source software from DAC Software Tech. And uh, in particular, I've got an article. Let's see if a camera can actually see anything here. <laughs>
0: Well, okay, Those of you on the audio feed, you're not missing much.
1: <laughs> that's, that's right.
0: <laughs> uh, He's just pulling okay. up a magazine.
1: <laughs> that's right. Basically, it's the title is called Publicly Releasing Open Source Software Developed for the U.S. Government. And this is the document I really wish somebody else had written, and I couldn't find it, so I ended up writing it. Uh, it's, the, uh, it's sort of the uh, decryption key for how the heck to figure out when the government has the rights to release. And the basic answer is if the government has copyrights to it, and sometimes it does, or if the government has what's called unlimited rights, which often it does, then the government can actually release the software is open source software given certain other conditions like, you know, it can't be classified or anything like that. And the contractors, again, if they have the rights, um, particularly if they have the copyright, uh, typically can release as open source software as well. Um, so basically, uh, it turns out that in an amazing number of cases, oh, by the way, that article is available online for free, or PDF, um, uh, basically the government actually has in a remarkable number of cases, the rights to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the third point actually is, is what I alluded earlier. There can't be some other reason it can't release it. So some software is what they call classify, you know, secret, top secret. Uh, some software is what they call expert controlled. And, you know, that kind of software, actually not only can that not be released as open source software, that source software can't even normally be released as proprietary software. Uh, at least not without special restrictions. So, you know, software, you you don't want some of the special software that's really good at aiming a missile somewhere uh, out to the general public. uh, And I don't care what license is under. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, for a lot of software, you know, the the government doesn't have special needs for some software that, uh, you know, I want to distribute information to the public, and I want to improve my website for doing so. and. I figured out how to improve it. Let's get that changed back to the open-source software project um, so that everybody can use that in the future and I don't have to pay the maintenance costs for it. Um, you know, it makes perfect sense. Um, and you know, not just the DoD, but
0: lots of people. Now, the, the people you've had the chance to actually chat with in the DoD about this, and you don't have to mention any names or anything, obviously, even if you could. Um, I, I'm wondering, do they have the... Uh, knowing what you also know about the open source community, do, do they have the same sort of, like, let's open source as much as we can attitude, or is this vary, or uh, is it still pretty uh, confusing to them?
1: Uh, all of the above, I guess. Um, okay. <laughs> it varies. <laughs> it, it, the experience varies a lot. Um, you know, there are some folks who really do, um, you know, want to work with and, and are, I would say, at least in some cases, successful working out with the uh, 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 general community. There's a whole lot of work in the geospatial community. Um, I should give a shout out to uh, Delta 3D folks who've been uh, uh, developing... Uh, uh, engines uh, to do simulations for training and such. Um, so you know, there are some folks who are quite who are knowledgeable, understand these issues, and then there's some. You know, a lot of project managers. You know, they didn't get where they are by uh, developing big open source software projects, um, and so they often don't understand what this is all about, and that's a matter of. Getting them to you know to understand it. I think you mentioned a lot of the technical folks, of course, do understand this, and so the good news is that they're talking up their chain to their managers, saying, "Hey, this is will be a good idea." And the good news is that now, at least in the DoD, there's kind of top cover uh, these policies, saying, "Yes, it's okay. This is a perfectly reasonable approach in a lot of cases." And so, you know, not that everything was going to be open sourced, but you know, it's okay to use open source. It's okay to release open source. Here's some uh, rules and guides, and off you go. Great. Simon? Nope. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> <Did he freeze? laughs> yeah, the, 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 the camera switched to you, so I thought uh, you were about to say something.
2: <laughs> Hi, I certainly can do. Shall we try that one again? <laughs>
1: yes.
2: <Go ahead. laughs> well, well, yes, actually, David. Um, so I have a completely orthogonal question for you here. Uh, I know that you're very interested in open source licensing. Uh, and uh, I, I've just got off uh, an OSI board meeting. I was just reviewing the, uh, the minutes there as, as you were speaking, in fact. And uh, I, I would be very interested in what message you would send to the new OSI board that just took its seats today concerning open source licensing from the DoD's perspective. If there was one thing you could ask us to do, what would it be?
1: I can't speak for the DoD officially, but I can say for me personally, I would say you know a uh, continuing pressure, and OSI has actually done this already to some extent. Uh, a continuing press to encourage people to use a very short list of well-known, well-understood licenses. And I, and, and in fact, I'll, I'll give you my list. Everybody has a slightly different list, but you know, basically, I would talk about the the MIT, the BSD New. Maybe I include the two clause BSD as well, um, uh, LGPL, GPL, and I guess I include Apache 2.0 license as well. Um, you know, I realize OSI has already done some identification along those lines. But um, the big trouble with uh, a lot of folks who do licensing is uh, there's a lot of people who think that it's a great idea to write a new license. And the, and as, as you're well aware of, but I fear some people who are listening aren't, um, basically an, an open source software license creates the set of rules Um, That everyone has to follow and a lot of these licenses that think they're open-source software aren't actually And even ones that are are often incompatible Whereas that set uh, generally you can combine software to make the make larger works And that's really what makes this whole thing run is being able to take software combine it with other software uh, that you've developed that other people developed uh, into larger interesting works and and You know, this is actually one of the continuing problems that I have is I constantly see yet another, not so much being developed inside the DoD at this point, uh, but from outside, we like to use some software and it uses this odd license or it's incompatible with the license of this other software we need to use and we need to combine them together. And that's a big, big problem. Uh, I guess probably the other thing I'd beg for the OSI to do would be education. Uh, There's... You know, there's still a remarkable amount of just misunderstanding the basic level of what, what the laws are about software or about open source software in general. Uh, I was at a NASA conference last week and some NASA programmer said, oh, you know, I could, look, I'm going to use some public domain software like this software I just uh, copied and pasted from a blog site. Now, just because it's posted on a blog site doesn't mean it's not copyrighted, which is what he meant. Um, and, you know, basically they just, a whole lot of people just don't understand the basic rules. Uh, we don't need them to turn into lawyers, but just a very basic understanding of here's what you're allowed to do, here's what not you're allowed to do, here are what the basic licenses are and what they mean. Um, you know, the shortlist, I think that would be very, very helpful. There's probably some stuff on there already, but I'd like to see more, you know, uh, materials to help people get started.
2: Right. I, I seem to remember at the NASA conference you made some comments about NASA's uh, open source license. Uh, I got the got the impression you weren't very excited by it. Do you want to uh, explain your problem with it?
1: Uh, sure. I, I'm excited, but only in the negative sense. Uh, I I think it's a big problem. Uh, the NASA li- uh, now. I I do want to give credit, by the way. Um, You know, NASA many years ago was, um, starting from many years ago, realized that they needed to, they were using open source software. They needed to release more of its software as open source. And so I really do want to give them credit. It's it's not just all negative news. The problem was that they decided that they were going to write their own special NASA license. And the NASA license, as it's currently written, is is universally incompatible. Uh, not only is it incompatible with all the other licenses, it's even incompatible with, say, uh, a government employee's software. You know, if a DoD employee wrote software, uh, um, normally that would uh, not be uh, under copyright, at least in the U.S., but, unless, but anybody else couldn't add that software to NASA license software. There's a weird quirk in the NASA license. This is a big problem uh, that causes this. Basically, it says that only the original authors of the software can modify, can add any changes to the NASA software license. What that's meant is that for the software that NASA's released, most of it never, never gets any serious improvements. It may get a few little tweaks here and there, but it doesn't get, one of the major reasons to release is open source is to get other people to collaborate with you. And this license creates a fundamental incompatibility. Now I've talked with some of the lawyers, but the reality is that no other government agency has decided it needs a weird special license. It's a vanity license. And um, I think that we need to admit that, hey, you know, I, I'm glad that they're interested in open source, but we need to get rid of that license um, you know, require projects that use special waivers. Um, I would say improve that license just for the ones who are stuck with it, because sometimes it's easier to move to upgrade a license than to switch. Um, but I'd like to see NASA primarily releasing open-source software under standard normal licenses that the rest of the, of the world uses. Um, and uh, NASA has some, uh, has some other issues too, and they're specific to NASA, but uh, I think in general they need to make it a lot easier to uh, release this open-source software uh, than they do now. Uh, Because, in fact, there's a lot of great things that they do and a lot more great things they could do if if they uh, fix the policies.
2: Yeah, I'm really very excited by the way they're um, following through with the the OpenStack work. Uh, I think that the idea of NASA being one of the stakeholders behind OpenStack makes it a, a very interesting proposition in the open source space.
1: Agreed, agreed, and you know that's I, I, I mean OpenStack's just starting, and yet I think you can say in many ways it's already a success. Um, certainly, it's got a lot of buzz, a lot, a number of users, and I think we're going to see more and more of that. Uh, you know, NASA's actually done a lot of interesting stuff, and it's kind of sad that so much of this is stuck under this, you know, uh, you know a uh, license that doesn't let anybody improve or change it unless you happen to be the original author, you know, um, which is frankly minority. I should note, by the way, the NASA license has already been declared. The, the Free Software Foundation declares it as non-free. I know Fedora forbids it. And I think there are some other distributions which also forbid. So you've got NASA releasing software that's an open source software, but other projects explicitly forbidding its use or distribution as part of their distributions. And that's a, not because it's any problem with NASA, but because of problems with their license. So I'm really hoping that in the long term we can get this fixed.
0: You know, I don't know where you stand on what I'm about to ask for the next question. It's sort of bad to ambush you with this, but... I know that as I was discussing the show with some of the people uh, in the chat room before the show, and also with my friends a couple days ago, uh, they were like, "Oh my God!" So the DoD is using stuff like Perl, like libraries we've contributed to uh, to do what they do, which includes, you know, killing people. That's you know one of the aspects of things that go on in the Department of Defense. And I know that I remember seeing a number of years ago uh, some ad hoc licenses, not licenses that would be OSI approved, but that had clauses in them that say not to be used for military conflict or something like that. What, can, do you have anything you could say to people who are concerned about their software being used for things that they're morally against? Well, oh, let's see. Obviously,
1: I don't have a moral objection to the uh, Department <laughs> of Defense that I work no. with them. Yeah. Um, and I should note, by the way, I mean look. Notice the definite the term of its. Notice the name of the organization. The point of creating military organization isn't actually to kill people. It's to protect the country and the the interests of the country. And unfortunately, you need to have the threat of force to be able to be to be credible. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, it'd be a nice world where there were no weapons at all. But as soon as somebody creates a weapon, the other guys need weapons to defend themselves. And that's the world we actually live in. And, you know, I don't live in this ideal world. I live in the actual world. Uh, Now, that said, let me uh, point out that any license that restricts uh, the... The use is can't be an open source license because it says you can use it for any purpose. Uh, You know, uh, I like uh, Linus's, uh, uh, you know, sharks with lasers. Uh, So, you know, Mm -hmm. you can can use it for putting on uh, sharks with lasers on their heads. Um, But uh, before you scream too loudly, I should note that we're talking over uh, a TCP IP connection. And mm-hmm. TCPIP was developed entirely with the, with Department of Defense funds. Uh, so anybody who uses the Internet is using stuff that was developed using government funds. And by the way, not only did the DoD fund it, um, the key thing that enabled the Internet to exist was the release of the open source implementation in the BSDs of T- TCPIP. Uh, even those who don't use stacks built on it use the knowledge from those stacks to build their own stacks. So... You know, whether or not you like it. Um, you know the Department of Defense actually does a uh, a lot of good for a lot of folks, and um, uh,
0: you know, and you know, if if you're going, you know, that's uh, an important thing to know too. That's an incredibly uh, great answer to that. I'm sorry for ambushing you with the question, but I thought oh, people have asked me that, so I would be amiss to not actually bring it up here. <laughs> the other thing I also wanted to, I was curious about. Um, I believe that stuff created by the US government, including the DOT, is all automatically in the public domain, correct? And if so, do they need to apply an open source license to the material they create themselves? Oh, wonderful.
1: Uh, it, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that because that turns out to be not quite true. Hmm. Uh, so, so let, let me, uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say, I, I'm not a lawyer, by the way, uh, but I've had to learn a whole lot about the law. And I think anybody who's developing software needs to learn a little bit about the law because, you know, you need to follow the rules. And uh, uh, in the case of government, it turns out that the government has the copyright for lots and lots of software. If an employee, and let me see if I can do this correctly, if an employee develops software, a U.S. government employee develops software as part of their official duties, Okay? Um, Then it is not subject to copyright in the United States. That's how it actually works. Now, there's all sorts of caveats. It actually can be copyrighted outside the US. I'm not sure that's such a good idea for uh, for a variety of reasons, but it can be copyrighted outside the US. The other issue is that it only applies to US government employees of part of official duties. That would include a um, a soldier. But for example, a contractor is not a US government employee. And Mm. almost all software done by government is actually not written by an employee. It's done under contract. And so it's a completely different set of rules. This only applies to the employees and only as part of their official duties. If uh, some guy goes out at night and writes software that's not related to what they do as their day job, um, then again, it's not part of the official duties. Um, That rule doesn't apply. Um, So... Yes, there is such a rule, but there's a whole bunch of little asterisks afterwards that mm-hmm. you have to be a little careful of. Um, in the special case where US, where the entire program, every line of code is written by US government officials as part of official duties, then it is not subject to copyright in the US. Um, it can be subject to copyright outside the US, um, but it is not copyrighted in the US. So if and this has actually happened, for example, with, with uh, the um, um, uh, help uh, VA software called Vista. Um, not, not the Windows operating system, but um, uh, Vista was, I believe, entirely developed by government employees, part of the official duty. So it's public domain. When they released it, there is no copyright on it inside the U.S. Uh, but as soon as you add even one line of code from somebody else, uh, that line of code is, of course, subject to other rules. And that means the software as a whole, you know, if, if there's part of it that's copyrighted, then the combination, uh, um, I should go backwards. Whenever you take software and it's combined with lots of different uh, pieces, you have to obey all the rules. So if one piece is copyrighted and other parts aren't, then the system as a whole, you have to treat it as, as a copyrighted work because parts of it are and you have to obey all the rules. Mm-hmm. So, so basically, there's a reason why people say that phrase, but because of these little asterisks and additions, um, it's a lot more complicated, and it turns out for a vast amount of software um, that the government develops, it's under, it's done by contractors, and so that rule just doesn't apply.
0: So, it does actually make sense, then, to make sure that even if it's a government employee in the act of his work... Writing software, uh, every line of code be coming out of his fingers, or wherever they come out from, maybe his head, Eddie, <laughs> wherever lines of code come from, uh, that they that still actually look at uh, licensing the software under a uh, compatible uh, open source license just so that we won't have that confusion about outside the U.S. or what happens when somebody else wants to adapt part of it.
1: That's right, that's right I, I know of no reason, for example, you can't say, here's the license to supplies outside the u s um I've not double checked that with lawyers i've you know I've learned to always double check things with lawyers but i can't <laughs> think of I can't think of any reason offhand um and uh, in any case see, what what often happens is it's combined um SC Linux is an interesting case in point. I love to tell this story mm-hmm. um a good portion portions of that software were written by government employees as part of their official duties. Um, but it's actually more complicated. One of them, uh, can I, yeah, I can give names. Uh, Steve Smalley was a government employee, and when he wrote software as part of his official duties, that was not subject to copyright in the U.S. He then went outside the government and worked for a contractor for a while. During that, and kept, kept writing software, uh, that part was copyrighted. Then he went back to the government. So it's the same person but who he worked for well, mm-hmm. mattered as far as this regime and i think in reality a vast amount of government software has this combination of government and contractor and, and that's okay and there's nothing illegal about that at all that just means that you have to obey all the rules and so i think nowadays most I don't have any stats, but I, I would expect that from nowadays, most software is this combination. And so you end up just simply saying, yes, um, it's, parts of this are copyrighted. And so I'm going to treat the whole, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to license as a whole under a particular uh, open source software copyright, uh, open source software license, because that means that I know what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do.
0: Hmm. Wow. You know, this is a really fascinating subject. I'm sure we've only scratched the surface of it. And I really appreciate you taking your time out of your day to uh, to try to enlighten us on some of these uh, complex issues. And I'm, I know we'll probably have some listeners in the DOD that may go, oh, my God, there's actually some position papers I can now follow and things like that. So I really appreciate you coming <laughs> sure. on the show. Uh, is there anything we missed, we skipped over that you really want to make sure our audience knows before we have to let you go?
1: Oh, I'm sure, there, I'm sure I'll am sure i think of a whole bunch of things uh, once we uh, sign off.
0: Yeah, um, I know. That always works that
1: way. <laughs> that always works that way. Um, so um, I, I guess uh, you know, I already touched about the, uh, you know, please use a common license that everybody understands. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I've done some work. Um, my, my look at the numbers paper, uh, which I intend to uh, update recently, but basically there's lots of, of numbers that say, you know, this is a reasonable thing to do. Um, I guess I should probably make a pitch um, against uh, a phrase I've heard a lot but I think uh, we need to stop using, um, and that's um, uh, intellectual property. Mm. Uh, What I found is that as soon as people start using that phrase, they make all sorts of assumptions that are true. Um, When you say property, most people think of things like cars. You know, I took your car, you have no car. But software and data in general doesn't work like that. If I copy your software... Well, wait a minute, you still have the software. It doesn't work at all like physical property. And I think we ought to be emphasizing phrases like intellectual rights and intellectual works. Because then a lot of the confusions involving government contracts and what's government allowed to do, I found hinges on this theory that, well, wait a minute, I'm going to think about who owns what, who holds the copyrights. And usually it actually doesn't matter. What often matters is just who has which rights. And when you think, and when you start asking, well, do I have the right to do this? What do I have the rights to do? You're actually way better off in, in, at least in the U.S. government, um, because you're starting to now ask the right questions uh, instead of questions that, frankly, may not matter. That's actually true in open source software in general. You know, I don't even know who necessarily has all the copyrights to some uh, to some of these large, large open source software projects because they've got so many people who've worked on them, and yet all I really care about is what rights do I have? Oh, and now I know.
2: So I I get a lot of pushback from folks when I – because I I, I agree with your point completely there, David. Uh, I get a lot of pushback when I say to people they shouldn't say intellectual property. So I, I, I don't actually fight the term. I just always substitute it out with the word they should have used because they either mean copyright, patent, trademark, or trade secret. And so I simply don't reply back with intellectual property. I reply back and say, uh, well, you know, copyright this or or, or, uh, how do your patents apply or whatever. Uh, Do you find you get a lot of pushback in the DOD when you try and snuff out the term uh, intellectual property or uh, do you have a strategy for dealing with it?
1: Oh, I have, I have no illusions that uh, I have a magic wand. I'm going to stop everyone from using some phrase. But I think if, if some of us know, wait a minute, that's a misleading phrase, I'm going to use a different phrase. Um, even just simply a number of people using clearer phrases, clearer words um, is way more likely and, and why they're doing it. Um, helps a lot in, uh, kind of, in kind of getting that understanding. Um, so that even if some people use a different phrase, okay, I know what you really meant and you move on.
0: Wow, such a fascinating topic, as I said a few minutes ago. But uh, I just want to, again, thank you for uh, ta- there's a lot more. And I and I know that we're going to have, like, the, the URL for your website on in the show notes. And I, I know I really encourage people to go read the rest of the material that uh, we were just sort of skipping over in today's show because you've got a lot of really good detailed points there and a lot of good uh, I- intellectual aspects of all this stuff. So, uh, again, I want to thank you again, uh, David, for coming on the show and talking about it. Happy to do so. Very good, very good. That was uh, David A. Wheeler, because apparently there's a number of David Wheelers out there, and uh, talking to us about open source software in the Department of Defense. Simon, what do you think?
2: I think that's a very interesting uh, set of topics there, Randall. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You you know, I've looked at procurement policies around the world with various governments, various um, uh, defense departments, and um, I, I think that the work that the DOD has been doing is very uh, well thought through, um, it's very low key and yet very effective, and I'm, I'm pretty impressed by the, uh, the work they've been able to do. Uh, I had the privilege of being involved in the US Air Force's uh, work on open source a, a few years ago when I was working at Sun, and mm-hmm. I was very impressed by the number of people there were in the DOD and the US Air Force, uh, and presumably in the Army as well who have got uh, a a deep understanding of software freedom and are very keen to make it work for uh, the US Federal Republic.
0: It's really interesting that we get to use open source software now and really in every aspect of of life. We're talking about, you know, commercial software, commercial applications, we're talking about NGOs, and also now, geos. (laughs) (laughs) What's the opposite of an NGO? I guess it'd be a geo, right?
2: (laughs) I I was also very thrilled to hear that the uh, NSA is using open source software. Uh, You know, I look forward to being able to go back to uh, Ian Watmore in the UK government and ask him uh, if the software is so insecure, how come the NSA are using it?
0: yeah especially when they were able to take uh, Linux and make it hardened with the SE Linux project, which is really uh, really great that they can be able to contribute that back and and yeah, I know that there's there's been a lot of my friends that have sort of quietly talked to me and I know that a few more than a few of them have actually you know been in organizations that have three letters, so it's very nice that, uh, that we, we get some sort of public acknowledgement at least in in this realm as well uh, speaking of public acknowledgement. There's my bad segue to my guest list. <laughs> I was going to have to have some bad bad handoff here. So uh, we've got a bunch of really cool people coming up in the uh, Q2 here. I've got a bunch of slots already scheduled. We've got a few more coming up next week. Really looking forward to this show. Uh, Jason Huggins is uh, okay. talk, going to talk to us. What, the creator of Selenium, which is the big web testing framework, is going to talk to us about Selenium and also about his project, Uh, uh, Sauce Labs, which is a commercialization of Selenium, so one of these uh, really great models of being able to actually make money off this stuff and not just be a starving artist. Uh, We've got, uh, immediately after that, we have uh, Philip, no, I'm sorry, we have Emil Ivov, Emil Ivov, I guess, who uh, wrote uh, Jitsi, which is formerly called SIP Communicator. It's the the open source VoIP client that does both uh, audio and video. Looking forward to that, uh, maybe tying that in with some of the shows we did recently. Philip Brown and Ben Walton are going to talk to us about OpenCSW, the uh, open source packaging system for OpenSolaris. Uh, uh, Simon, you might know a little bit about that,
2: right? Uh, I certainly remember the doing the research that showed that it was time for a new packaging solution. You, you know, if you look at um, the work that's happened on uh, uh, APT, the work that's happened on Uh, um, uh, the the Red Hat and SuSE packaging activities. Mm -hmm. Um, They were all designed in a day before you had virtualization and uh, multiple virtual hosts running on the same operating system. And there is definitely a call for the ideas of how to manage uh, the resources being used by multiple virtual machines by a package manager. So that was some of the thinking that went into that Open Solaris package manager. Uh, I've not been keeping up with it, so I'll be very interested to find out just how far they've let those thoughts progress into real code.
0: Yeah, and one of my coworkers here at Media Temple actually uh, has uh, worked around Philip Brown for a while, so he says he's going to be a really interesting guest. So I'm looking forward to that one. Especially, uh, we've also got uh, Dustin, my, Dustin Mitchell. I can't read my own writing here. Uh, working uh, on the BuildBot project, which is a Python building system, uh, deploying system. We've got uh, Matthew Flat, uh, the Racket uh, software, which is uh, used to be called. Ooh, and I'm gonna not remember the name. It's the it's the uh, it's the uh, scheme S L T something scheme whatever it is. It's a language for teaching kids programming, which I'm really looking forward to talking to as well. We also have uh, I'm gonna mispronounce this too. Kosuki Kawaguchi, Kosh something like that. Kosuki Kawaguchi, who is the creator of what used to be called Hudson, now called Jenkins. Uh, which uh, had a fork because of the uh, whole uh, Oracle Sun mismatch there. But uh, and Simon, you might have something to say about that too, but I'll just let you can stay quiet for now. Uh, Curtis <laughs> Jewell is going save, save all your anger for later. Okay, Curtis Jewell is uh, going to talk to us about Strawberry Pearl, which is the version of Pearl that runs on Windows, uh, but has all the same normal features of being able to. Um, uh, uh, install your own CPAN modules, which, unlike the uh, version from ActiveState, a lot of other people on the shortlist. Uh, you can go to twit.tv slash floss, and there's a spreadsheet linked from there that talks about all of our upcoming guests. And uh, if you see somebody on, no, I did that wrong again. If, you, if somebody that you want on that list, have the project leader, email me, Merlin merlin.stunhinch.com. That's how all these people got on there. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Merlin, M-E-R-L-Y-N. I, you can see that uh, where, I'm, where I'm gonna be and what I'm, who I'm hanging out with and stuff. I'm also on about 17 other social sites. I've just been posting pictures to pick please. And I've been posting on my blog at merlin.posterous.com. And so there's just, just I'm all over the web. Just come find me that way. Um, Next week, I'll be in Portland. I'll be recording the next uh, show I'm going to do for Starship Sofa. If you haven't seen starshipsofa.com, I've been reading uh, um, sci-fi stories for them as a reader. It's been a lot of fun for that. Uh, And that's all the things I want to plug today. Uh, Simon, where can we find you?
2: Uh, my plugging needs are much simpler than yours today, Randall. <laughs> uh, I, just, I just want to encourage every reader to go follow me on Twitter where they'll find that I'm webmink. And I'd like to encourage every listener to go visit my website, webmink.com and uh, go see the stuff that I'm talking about there about open source procurement, Uh, about uh, software patents and Novell's acquisition by CPTN, a consortium run by Oracle, uh, EMC, Apple, and Microsoft. And uh, all of the other stuff that I'm writing about, I'm trying to write something uh, substantial twice a week and something interesting uh, every day. And I would welcome uh, readers on webmink.com, which you see there at the bottom of the screen if you're doing video, and which you'll just have to take careful note of if you're listening to the audio only.
0: Very good, very good. But that's, uh, that's a big challenge to write something or at least something interesting every day. That's really cool. So uh, glad that you're doing that. Very good. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I got you, got you with a glass <laughs> in your mouth. Okay, I was the, wondering the, where the, that pause the, I, I would never
2: do this, of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. I always find out a lot just listing the way you're talking to the guests because you have such an amazing background in, in uh, open source uh, advocacy and, and punditry that uh, I really appreciate again that you being able to come on the show.
2: It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to uh, coming and harassing some of your future guests, Brandon. Very
0: good, very good, Simon. Thanks a lot. And of course, uh, speaking of future guests, oh, wait, I did that already. <laughs> That's not even a good segue now. Let's just do <laughs> get, the, get the heck out of the show. We'll see you all again next time on Floss Weekly.